Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are Radio Strong. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. Hey, everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Dr. Donald Moses, and he is this amazing parent, expert, counselor. Just he knows so much about things that I know nothing about, and most of us don't who are raising kids. And today we're going to talk about the opioid crisis as it relates to COVID. And I'm going to bring you right to Dr. Moses because he's got so much to share, and we only have 45 minutes. So, Dr. Moses, tell me a little bit about your experience and your life and why you are so passionate about this subject. Well, I became passionate about the subject back in 1962 uh, when I was working with uh, heroin addicts uh, on the uh, prison ward of Metropolitan Hospital on uh, 96th Street in Manhattan. And I found that they were uh, surprisingly sensitive, intelligent, it was all males at the time, men, very often artistic, musicians, artists. And I said to myself, what is going on here? Why should these people be uh, uh, into heroin? Uh, Even at that time as a senior medical student, I was destined for psychiatry. Uh, I've always wanted to be a psychiatrist from the time I was 13 years old or so. And uh, so I wanted to delve into their backgrounds a little bit and began to do some kind of uh, history with them. Uh, I found, as I've said, a, uh, a willingness to talk and a sensitivity and intelligence that I did not expect. Uh, my next direct experience uh, was with uh, when I was working at Hillside Hospital doing my psychiatric residency after two years in the Air Force as a general uh, practitioner for flight, uh, flight personnel, uh, I, uh, pardon, I uh, experienced this in 1964, I guess it was, uh, when I was given a drug abuser, the first one who was ever hospitalized rather than sent to prison. And again, I found that this uh, young gal was highly intelligent, very sensitive, easily hurt, and came from what was really a very deprived background. Uh, One of the common factors that I discovered with all drug abusers is one of two things. One is a very deprived background, and the other one is a uh, severe learning disability that goes unaddressed until they're older in life. Uh, From there, after my... uh, my residency and becoming a full-fledged psychiatrist, I worked as the psychiatric consultant to a the Manhasset uh, day drug program, working with uh, every kind of young drug abuser from uh, adolescence to adult, and uh, concurrently working as a psychiatric consultant to the Queens Hospital in Queens, New York, uh, which was a methadone maintenance program. And I worked with the methadone patients who were also uh, getting off or trying to get off 
of opiates, uh, using one opiate to substitute for another, uh, often mouthing the methadone and selling it on the street. Uh, so with that experience and with my 50 or so years in private practice, working individually with drug abusers, uh, doing psychodynamic psychotherapy or psychoanalytic psychotherapy, delving into their backgrounds, finding out uh, what feelings drove them to uh, the drugs they were using. Uh, I published a couple of books along the way. One was called, Are You Driving Your Children to Drink? Causes and uh, Treatment of Adolescent Drug Abuse. And another one, which was recently published, uh, called Raising uh, Self-Confident and Independent Kids, which was published in concert with uh, Dr. Wendy Moss, a school psychologist and an expert in childhood. And my expertise ran into the uh, adolescent and adult. Uh, along with that, I published uh, several papers on different forms of drug abuse, cocaine abuse, learning disabilities, and drug abuse. So I would say that my experience doing psychoanalytic, psychodynamic psychotherapy with uh, drug users has been fairly extensive. And uh, getting away from the term abuse or addict, let's go to the real problem. It's a drug dependency. Dr. Moses, I'm just going to stop you for a second here because it's a really good time to thank our sponsor. And our sponsor today is Best Fiends. And Best Fiends is a mobile puzzle game that anyone can download and play. And, you know, if you have a few minutes or a few hours, Best Fiends is the perfect puzzle game to lose yourself in because you're having so much fun. And I've been playing this game for over two years, and they have sponsored and supported the military family through my show for over two years. And I want you guys to check it out because if you're stuck in the airport, if you're stuck waiting in line, you know, we're stuck so many places today with supply chain issues and staffing issues. Lines are longer. And this is a great way to break up that boredom, break up that frustration. And you can grab a moment to yourself and make the most of what we're going through by playing Best Fiends. And I play it in the line. I play it when I'm waiting to pick up my kids from school. I play it when I'm waiting for my dad's uh, prescriptions to be filled, all sorts of things. And when I'm waiting in long lines at the post office, because I have to ship stuff every week for my company, it is huge. I just, I'm automatic. I just reach for my phone. I play the rounds and it makes waiting in line actually fun and pleasant. And it breaks me out of the just frustration that we're all feeling. And what I love most about the game is I can play it with my families that are on bases all over the United States. I can play I play with my friend in Canada and, and my cousin in New York, and she's a nurse in, in a medical center at Albany Medical Center, and she uses it on her break just to take her away from everything that's going on. And right now I'm at level 301, and I want you guys to go and check this game out. Go and download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. You'll be glad you did because, like, right now I am in Buggles Post Office, and I just delivered gifts to nine of my friends. And 
that's really fun, you guys, because, you know, when we want to get out of a difficult, challenging, or frustrating mood, we can do something for somebody else. Well, that's not realistic sometimes with our time constraints, with our kids or our family obligations, but you can send little electronic digital gifts for free to your friends and family who are playing the game with you. So I encourage you to get your friends and family to sign up and also play. And you can download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R Best Fiends. And you can send them stuff and you can get stuff. Like right now, I just opened up 18 of my packages that came and I'm going to right now open up my crates and I'm going to do this automatically right here on the air and I just got over 12,000 points that I can use for other things. I got some cool keys. It is really fun, you guys. I encourage you to try it. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Now, uh, Dr. Moses, we're talking today with Dr. Donald Moses, and he is a dependency, he's a drug expert, and he's been working with kids and teens for over 40 years. And I want to talk about this concept of a drug dependency because a drug dependency isn't a disease. And I'd really like you to clarify that for me so I can better understand. Drug dependency is not a disease in, unto itself. It is a symptom of an underlying psychological disorder. And that using the drugs is self-medication. Now, if somebody out there who's listened to this may have anxiety or depression, you go to a psychiatrist and they say, all right, uh, for anxiety, take Xanax or Valium, or for depression, they'll tell you to take Paxil or uh, any of the other um, multitude of uh, antidepressants that are out there. And what these drugs do is they alleviate pain. Well, drug abuse, uh, drug dependence, whether we're talking about the opiates or alcohol or tobacco, uh, is really self-medication to deal with emotional situations, which are too uncomfortable for the individual to deal with alone. Uh, the other thing I would like to differentiate for people is the difference between addiction and non-addiction. Addiction is when there is a cellular need for the drug. Habituation is when there is no cellular need. When you withdraw from an, uh, an addict withdraws from the drug, there's a serious physical reaction Everything from DTs with alcohol, and everybody heard the term DTs, uh, to cold turkey with heroin, with barbiturates, which is another of the addictive, addictive drugs, uh, even can go as far as convulsions and death. So we can see the cellular uh, requirements. Of course, in a way, we're all, according to that definition, we're addicted to food and oxygen, without which our cells are not very happy. Uh, but the trouble with the, the medications that I'm talking about is they diminish functioning, they diminish living ability, and they uh, are, uh, are basically dangerous for the individual. Now, let's talk about the opiate specifically. The opiate drug is a drug that is that allows the individual to return to a very young state of uh, comfort. Uh, many of you out there are mothers and fathers, and you've realized that when your little infant is hungry, starts to cry and becomes very agitated, the minute the infant is fed, you find 
a quietness and a, uh, a situation where they fall asleep after they finish uh, feeding. Well, ironically enough, when I started in this business in 1962, the dealer was called Mother, the heroin was called Milk, and the place they shot up was called The Crib. Now, they didn't need Freud to make that connection. Uh, what we're seeing here, when a drug, when a heroin addict or an opiate addict has his drug, he is, he is not, an, I refuse to word, use the word they, uh, I'm using, I'm rather old until you have to get used to my antiquated language here. Uh, when, when a, uh, a drug, uh, when a heroin or an opiate user is on the drug, they're very placid, quiet, and on the nod. You may have heard the expression being on the nod when they have their drug. It's when they don't have their drug, they become totally agitated, frustrated, and turn towards some kind of potential violent or illegal behavior in order to obtain the drug. Many of these people are actual dealers and uh, will sell a large part of it and keep part of it for themselves. Uh, but what we're really talking about is the underlying problem of a dependency need. In my experience, and people are not gonna like to hear this, but you can hear it anyway. Uh, when a child does not feel that there is a person there on whom he or she can depend, a mommy, a daddy, somebody there who's there, we're not talking about daycare where some uh, unknown person may be there one day, another person another, and then third person third. Uh, you don't have any clear bonding to any one person. It's that bonding to the person that you can feel that you can depend on that makes you feel a sense of comfort and the ability to turn to, a, when you're an adult, to other adults for that kind of support. Now, this is true. We all, as adults, depend on other people. Mm -hmm. We depend on our car mechanics, on our plumbers, our electricians. Uh, we even depend sometimes on doctors and psychiatrists. But that is depending. Uh, when you are dependent, that is a different story. Uh, when a dependent person cannot find somebody who can fulfill that dependency need, they become agitated, frightened, anxiety-ridden, uh, and then eventually angry. And the analogy I've always used is this. Uh, those of you out there who drive a car in a area where there are gas stations, you know that if you're low on gas and you pull into a gas station, uh, and the gas station is out of gas, you say, oh, drat, or whatever expletive you choose, and go on to another station and fill up at the momentary annoyance until you find the other station. Now, you're driving through Mojave Desert, and there's one gas station between you and the other end of the desert, and you're low on gas. And you see this gas station in the, in the distance, and you begin to develop an anxiety. Uh, what if the gas station is closed? What if they're open, they have no gas? What if they don't accept my credit card? And the anxiety grows and grows and grows until you become agitated and pull in and either A, find that your agitation was unnecessary because 
you just fill up your tank and go on, or your agitation was definitely necessary because they have no gas and they're not expecting any for two days. That's the, the addict who doesn't have his drug experiences that second experience. The one of no gas, sorry, you can't go on, you're stuck, but I've got to go on. I can't do without it, I can't do without it. And that's when they become violent at times or uh, commit some other illegal act. A lot of the young women turn to prostitution, whatever it is that they need to do to get that drug. Now, uh, in today's society, and now I'm going to refer to my uh, authorship, or partial authorship, my second book, uh, Raising Self-Confident Independent Kids. Uh, we're finding more and more youngsters are not being raised to face danger, to face trauma. They're being protected, overprotected. We use the expression helicopter moms. Uh, they, they don't know how to deal when they get to be adults. Uh, with the many traumatic experiences we have every week. And this, of course, leads to a great deal of anxiety. And in extreme cases, uh, opiate use. In less extreme cases, they might seek out a doctor and get some Valium or some Xanax or something to alleviate that anxiety. But the idea of raising your child uh, to be totally protected uh, and safe. I don't know, somehow, I'm 83 years old. I don't know how I made it this long. I didn't have any helmets. We didn't have helmets on our tricycles. We didn't have helmets on our bicycles. Uh, we didn't have safe belts in the car. I don't think many of you remember when there were absolutely no seat belts in your car. And you had to know how to shift gears to get from first to, to fourth. Uh, and somehow we made it and we were a bit stronger for it. Those of us who are a little older than I and who served in World War II, mm -hmm. they had incredible trauma. Many of them dealt with, with it, with alcohol or whatever was available, but many of the soldiers did not seek any kind of uh, tranquilization. They just faced their fear and not comfortably, some didn't of course, but most did, fortunately, for the outcome of the war. So these kind of traumas were much more common back in the old days. Uh, nowadays, the desire to keep our children happy and safe and comfortable, uh, there's a bit of an overreach there. Not that I'm saying that children should not be safe and comfortable, don't get me wrong. Uh, I raised two who were safe and comfortable, but also have been uh, are quite exploratory on their own now that they're grown men. Uh, but I think that we have to face uh, the situation now that a child, when you're raising a child, you don't raise a child to be happy at 15. You raise a child to be happy at 30 by being confident, mm -hmm. sure of himself, and capable of knowing he is what she is capable of dealing with, she has to or he has to during that particular day, week, or month. Mm -hmm. Sandra, would you like to pick up on something? 
Well, yeah, I I definitely would like to chime in on the the snowflake generation, especially that is typified by both of my kids that they're going to melt at the first sign of heat. And I love your point of view because it's very much shared. And I think, Dr. Moses, I have a multi-generational household. I have my 88-year-old dad that I've cared for for 12 years, and then I have me, and then I have two teenage boys. So it kind of runs the gamut in here, but you're definitely on to something that this desire to nurture and protect even a 15-year-old or an 18-year-old or what I'm seeing even worse, 21, 22-year-old kids that are almost infantilized. Sandra, may I interrupt? Yeah. 21 to 22-year-old what? Children. Children. No. Yes, that's the perception. And I have 22 year olds are not kids. You will laugh, not laugh, haha, but like, you know, ironically laugh or whatever the right word is. I have a couple friends. I've worked with the military. My dad was Navy, and I've worked with the military for 30 years. And we actually have friends who are responsible for handling the boot camps. And we get these letters from parents wanting the drill instructor or the you know whoever has hurt their precious little child who's 21 22 years old i also teach at the college level and i have i have never received one personally but i have peers who have gotten emails from parents of 20 21 year old children from their parents advocating for their grades and the unfairness of this teacher you know talk about overreach overstep we're not talking about you know a 10 year old a 12 year old a 15 we're into the 20 year olds that must be prevented from experiencing any sort of negative or challenging behavior and then we wonder why kids have grown up into young men and women who are ill-equipped to even handle a basic college class or go to boot camp. Well, don't they now have certain college rooms, which are called some safety rooms or crying rooms or to, to uh, mollify some of these youngsters who, uh, when I think about it, uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with the name Audie Murphy. He was the most decorated oh, sure. soldier in World War II. He went into the army at age 15, lying about his age, was mustered out at 19, and uh, had won every conceivable uh, medal from the United States and France. Uh, but who was landing on Normandy? 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. Right. And I think that... Uh, well, I have my own personal feeling. I think we have to reinstitute the draft, but everybody else at me when I say that to them. Well, I don't think we have to face our kids down with, you know, M16 rifles, but there has to be some sort of 
attention paid to resiliency, to self-reliance, to creating confidence. Like, you know, my biggest pet peeve, and I'll just share it, and I'm sure I'm going to get people saying, you know, all sorts of nasty things on my social media, so bring it on. People have said all sorts of nasty things to me for the last 80 years. There you go. But no kid needs a ninth place ribbon. No kid needs an eighth place ribbon. When I was growing up, we got a trophy. If you were first, second, and third, everybody else too bad, so sad, work harder. And I saw this in full bloom with my father when my kids were in eighth grade, and we're only going back a couple years where every kid got an award. We went to this award ceremony, Dr. Moses, and it started at like 8.30 in the morning and went to 11 because they gave every single kid an award for something because they didn't want kids to feel bad. And I sat there and my father said, looked at me and he goes, what do they give you an award for breathing in and out these days? (laughs) And I'm like, pretty much. And what it did, because I have real high functioning kids, I'll be honest, my kids are really bright ones on a full scholarship, you know, en route to law school. And they said to me, mom, I don't care about any of my awards. They threw them in drawers. They stuffed them in there because everybody gets one. So now you've, by giving everyone an award, you've invalidated the ones who've worked, my kids worked really hard to get top marks. And then in order to make anybody who didn't get top marks feel better, we've now like neutralized the whole idea of achieving anything. Isn't California, some parts of California, talking about uh, reinstituting and instituting a new math program Oh, they get a new math program every three years. But I mean, talking about uh, not not giving a, uh, the ones who are better in math an opportunity to go on to calculus in high school, uh, because everything now has to be equal. I know I don't sound very woke, but no. Uh, but the 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 idea of we all we aren't this, equal. We aren't uh, equal. We have no. not. We don't. We are not equal. Anybody who's had kids knows that you can have two babies same mom same dad same house same crib and get two entirely different beings coming out of that crib uh you know it's ironic i can't play basketball as well as michael jordan and it never bothered me i know he's much better at it than i am and i will never achieve what he can achieve in his area and i really believe that we have to recognize uh the superiority of each individual in his own area, his or her own area, yes. uh, whether it be an electrician, a plumber, uh, people, and this modern concept of every youngster must go on to college. You want, I really believe that this demand, the pressure we're putting on our youngsters, where you must go to college, you must be academic, is so destructive uh, to their to the psyches. Uh, it's interesting. I had an electrician. Uh, to the house recently, and his apprentice uh, just finished pre-med in college and decided he wanted to be an electrician. Uh, well, but and- let's, you know, to, to tag on to your college thing, like I believe college is a good thing for some kids, but saying you have to go to college, you might as well say you have to play for the NFL. Like, right. 
that's it. You know, you, you, you've given kids a limited scope of, and sure, can you play for the Ravens? Can you play for the Bills? Can you play for, nobody's going to pay for the Jets, but you can play for the Giants. You know, you give people a, a narrow window in which to choose from. And you're like, what if I'm a tennis player? Well, too bad. You have to go and you've got to play football. Like that's how ridiculous saying everyone has to go to college is pigeonholed into one life path. You know, we talk about the education system, which puts such pressure on kids. I have no linguistic ability. Uh, I failed French twice in college. Uh, I keep joking uh, that if uh, Sue Brown didn't have such a good handwriting next to me, I would have failed it three times. Uh, <laughs> I, I, and what, how has that limited me as a psychiatrist? I do not accept patients who speak only French. There you go. Uh, but the recognition that we each have an area, uh, when I was studying and I had to be a uh, go on rotation, and part of that rotation was surgery, a surgeon looked at me in the way I handled things and said, you don't want to be a surgeon, do you? I said, no way. He said, thank God you just saved thousands of lives <laughs> because I have no manual dexterity whatsoever. My ability lies strictly from the neck up. There you and, go. Uh, and I am not ashamed of my shortcomings. And I think that youngsters have got to recognize not everybody is academic. Right. By the way, Sandra, the most intelligent man that I know could not get into college because of dyslexia and dysgraphia. But he knows more things about more things. He owns a multinational, multi-million dollar business all on his own. And that just shows that the demand uh, for college education is putting pressure on kids who are just not equipped for college. Well, and it shouldn't be there. There, you know, like nobody loves, most people don't love to do things they're terrible at. So to make somebody do something that they're bad at and not give them the opportunity to do something at their, that they're good at is, is foolish. And I've had this argument with my kids' teachers over the years because one is very good in language and music and creative, and another one is good in, in politics and, you know, everything is black and white for this kid. So well, I, 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 I've had patients who are artists and musicians and their parents want them to go on to become doctors and lawyers. So I asked them a simple question. Do you remember the name of Mozart's or Rembrandt's doctor? Right. Right. Uh, but I think that here what we're talking about uh, le leads to something that has been a pet peeve of mine for years. We teach youngsters from the time they're in the first grade, if you're not good in math, spelling or English, history, language and science, you can be a failure. Right. And uh, I think that this steps into this leads right into the next uh, subject, which is learning disabilities, which we have to realize one of the major causes of drug abuse, including the opiates, uh, is the inability of a child to feel successful in the early years. Uh, the and you know we want to connect this to COVID. It's easy enough because it's hard enough when they're in class and have now the ability to see a special ed teacher or be in a class that is uh, so 
totally designed to teach in their way because many of them, and I've worked with many of them over the years, because of their drug use, they come to me, uh, they're highly intelligent. They're just not academic. Right. And uh, there's a big difference between intelligence and academic. People don't want to admit that. I know some pretty stupid doctors who are very academic. Uh, and I know some pretty stupid uh, engineers and uh, lawyers who are very academic, but really can't think their way out of a paper bag when it comes to daily uh, pragmatic thinking. But the learning disabled child, the first challenge to one's success is school. Let's keep mm -hmm. that in mind. When a child goes off to school and is told you're a failure, that sticks with them. If you can't make it in school, you're not gonna make it. This gentleman who owns his own company with 30 or four, 30 patents to his name uh, was told that he'd never succeed in anything more than scraping gum off the sidewalks because he had such severe learning disabilities. Uh, there is no connection between intelligence and these learning disabilities. <coughs> but the child, and one of the reasons this gentleman came to see me is because it was instilled in him that he's a failure. Right. Because he was a failure in school. And what happens is that these, not, not him particularly, he managed to avoid it, fortunately, but so many of the youngsters I see uh, find solace in not only the drug, but the drug crowd, because the drug crowd makes no demand on you except to use drugs. And uh, they, they don't have any high expectations from you. So their compatriots are all pretty much in the same boat. So they feel they have found the niche and that niche always includes some drug or other. And nowadays it's the opiates because they're, they're available, they're cheap, relatively cheap. And uh, they can, and they're easy to come by. Is there and a it, reason why someone would choose an opiate versus alcohol? Uh, in yes, your in experience, my, you know, like is in it- In my experience, opiate users tend to be, pardon me for getting Freudian, I am a Freudian in concept. Okay. Uh, the opiate user is arrested at a younger stage in life than the alcoholic. The alcoholic is, uh, has really advanced beyond this very totally dependent uh, mother milk crib stage of development. The opiate uh, addict, and let me, let me separate two things too. There is the addict who shall remain an addict and an addict who will stop being an addict. Many people are addicted because they're being prescribed an opiate for pain. They become addicted to it they become detoxified, they don't go back to it. We're talking about the addict who requires the drug, not only for the cells, but for the psyche. Gotcha. And there's a huge difference Oh, there. cellular and habitual. Right. Uh, and I think that the, the cellular addict is the one who can clean up and never be bothered with it again. And the habitual addict is one who needs it consistently for their psychological problems to deal with uh, how they're feeling. Now COVID came along in the nick of time uh, to have the kids now stay home and learn through virtual 
teaching. Virtual teaching is not as uh, inclusive as in situ teaching. To teach in the classroom with a bunch of other kids and even in the colleges with a bunch of other young adults, not kids. Uh, by the way, uh, my grandson is 16. I consider him a young adult. I don't consider him a kid. Uh, we talk as two adults. The, the uh, concept uh, now of the virtual uh, education, they don't, the child with some kind of learning problem or academic rebellion, it could be anxiety, it could be depression, it could be just plain old, what they say now, oppositional defiant disorder, or odd, as we abbreviate it. Uh, these kids now have the opportunity not to carry on at school. And so they fall behind. And in falling behind, uh, they are going to eventually seek solace somewhere. And they very often turn to one drug or the other. I cannot say they are always going to turn to the opiates because it depends again about the underlying, let's call it pathology for want of a better term. So if a kid falls back in school, like I look at, you know, some of the kids in my kids' programs, can you substitute the drug for sports or athletics? Does that seem to make a, you know, if, if you're not doing well in school, is it, does it help that they can have some other outlet like sports that can give them what they're looking for? Or is it just like, if you're not good in school and you're not supported in that, and there's- you're not good in sports. And if you're not good in sports, you're not good in school, the parents should continue to try things till they find something their kid is good at. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, absolutely. Uh, focus, the, focus your child in something he or she is good at. Uh, not always admonishing them for something that he or she is bad at. Uh, I think this is very important. But when you talk about athletics, ironically enough, the drug of choice among a lot of the athletes is cocaine. Because I call cocaine the omnipotent drug. Because it makes it, when you use cocaine, according to the many people I've treated on cocaine, it makes you feel that you could do anything. Uh, it makes you feel that you can trade bonds and you'll know what the bond market is gonna do the next day. That's why so many of the yuppies who are bond traders and other uh, financial institution traders uh, turn to cocaine. And the athletes who have to continue to perform at a high level and become anxiety ridden, well, I did it today, but will I be able to continue it tomorrow? Well, I threw four touchdown passes today. They can expect that from me tomorrow. I batted uh, four out of four today. They can expect, expect that from me tomorrow. A few whiffs of cocaine and they begin to feel, oh yeah, I can handle that. I'll be able to do it. So when you talk about athletics, we talk usually about a different drug, uh, the what are euphemistically called the uppers, cocaine, the amphetamines, uh, crack. Uh, the the others are really more downers, heroin, barbiturates, uh, tranquilizers, 
they're the ones that are, and marijuana is a hallucinogen, one with LSD and uh, psilocybin, uh, they're the mushrooms. So we are talking basically about uh, different drugs, different drugs for different folks. Gotcha, and for different uses, for uh, whether different it's emotional uses, exactly. regulation or, um, so at, at what point does a parent, like, is talking to your kid and say, you know, like the whole, like Nancy Reagan say no to drugs. Like, does that even work? The youngsters who came into me, their favorite uh, class in school was drug education because then they learned which drug to use and what they can expect from it. They didn't learn not to use drugs. Every youngster who's the, by the age of 13 knows not supposed to use drugs. You're telling them that something, yeah, I know that. Uh, most of us have, who are now adults have passed through adolescence. I think there's probably 100% of that. And we remember how, I guess most of us were rebellious in one form or another. And if your adolescent is not rebellious, there's something wrong. It's supposed to be a rebellion in adolescence. Mm -hmm. We have to divide that rebellion into two categories. One is non-destructive and one is destructive. It's when the rebellion is either destructive or self-destructive that you've got a problem. If the rebellion is I've decided to convert to a new religion and I'll convert back to my old religion in my 20s, or, uh, I decided I'm not gonna major in math, I'm gonna major in English. Uh, these are relatively harmless rebellions. But if they rebel by saying, I'm not going to school, or they rebel by becoming anorexic, or they rebel by getting into drugs, then you got problems. Gotcha. I think that uh, the reason why parents telling the drug, the, the child uh, not to use drugs, that they're bad for you, they already know that. So if they're going to use it, they're going to use it. If they're not, they're not. Uh, what role do you see parents playing in the the their children's choice? Like, do you, does people who drink beget more kids who drink? Like, is there a family correlation there? Uh, I don't know because so many of the people I've had in therapy who've had alcoholic parents don't drink or drink very little, and others who come from alcoholic parents drink too much and are alcoholic. Uh, I think it depends on the dynamic of the family besides just the alcohol. Gotcha. And, I think uh, these are some of the common beliefs I think parents hold. Like if a kid, if a parent drinks, the kid will drink. If the parent smokes, the kid will smoke. Like I hear that a lot with my parent peers, but I don't know that there's really much truth to that. Uh, I think it has much more to do with the total family dynamic than any one particular situation. Of course, a, a drunken parent who's never there is going to create a child who's liable to drink. Right. But if a parent happens to be an alcoholic after the child is in bed or the child is away and is a good parent the rest of the time, then the child probably won't drink. We don't know. I can't predict. Psychiatrists and psychologists are notorious non-predictors. We're much better in 
understanding the past and predicting the future. So uh, we've got about five minutes left. I'd like to know your your recommendation for any parent who's listening today who has a kid that struggles academically in particular and dealing with everything going on with all the restrictions, the cancellations in school and the emotions that go along with it. What would you tell them? What would you tell me if I came to you that said, I'm struggling, my kids are home, everything's getting canceled, they don't do well in school and I'm trying to earn a living for us? Hmm, that is a tough one. <laughs> well, first of all, you have to earn a living. Whether they're doing well in school or not, they have to eat. Right. And they have to have a roof over their head. So it's a given that you have to continue work. Uh, now they're home alone and they're struggling in school. I think the best you can do is if you can find somebody who you're close to, a, a parent is the best, of course. Uh, but many of the parents are already older, like your dad is 88. Uh, I'm going to be 84 soon. And if my uh, son, well, the, if my son wanted me to uh, stay with his uh, his kids, well, I'd be glad to do it. And my wife would, but we're, we're still basically vital. Mm -hmm. uh, an aunt, uh, a relative, a close friend, somebody who can give that child direction, warmth, especially warmth, encouragement, support. Child must have that support. Well, and can it be, and I'm just going to ask you this, because I saw how Chicken Nugget, that's our family dog, Chicken Nugget turned. Yeah, I, mean, I thought it was your family dinner. Yeah, <laughs> well, it could be close. Um, he really turned around my both of my sons in, I had a high conflict divorce with their father, and Chicken Nugget was constantly there with love and affection and sat with the boys. And I think in the lack of being able to provide anything else, providing this random collection of dog parts that I didn't want, but turned out to be the best thing for our family. What do you see as the role of pets? Do they give kids in the absence of not having a parent around or someone like that? Where do you think a pet falls? I think they're wonderful, but you're asking the wrong person. I can't go to a movie where the dog dies. Oh. <laughs> uh, I think dogs are wonderful and they are warm and loving and they're wonderful for kids. And uh, I think that the role, especially a bigger dog, the little dogs tend to be yappy and not as cuddly, but the big dogs, a collie, a, a shepherd, a, a retriever, child can hug that dog and be hugged back. Uh, I'm a very bad influence with dogs. They jump on me. And the only thing I'm trying to teach them not to jump, I said, I'm the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you for being my guest today, Dr. Donald Moses. Where can people find your books? That's what they should read if they really want to know about raising children today. Dr. Moss is uh, the publisher of, a, she's had, I think, 10 books published on uh, child rearing and for children. We have several published together. They can find it on Amazon. Uh, it's uh, raising self-confident, independent kids. I highly recommend it, not only for my writing, but certainly for Dr. Moss's. 
Absolutely. And I'm a big fan. You know, nobody has paid me anything to have you on today's show. I got a copy of your book a couple years ago. It's got great information. It's not a long read. It's practical. You can read it in sound bites. You don't have to go cover to cover and you do not bore me to death with things I don't need to know. So I really want to thank you for creating a parenting book that you can actually use. We'll be back again next week with another great episode. Thanks for spending time with us today on Military Mom Talk Radio. We've got more than 200 episodes available to you anytime on iTunes or at our website, MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. We look forward to another great conversation with you on Military Mom Talk Radio.